Hey folks, bringing you something special today. This week, Bryce Ward and I appeared on Home Ground Radio with Brian Kahn. We discussed the monthly series I'm doing with Bryce on this podcast, the motivation driving it, and some of our goals for the endeavor. Brian was kind enough to allow us to drop that episode in our feed in case you missed it. So have a listen. Welcome to Home Ground, Changes and Choices in the American West. I'm Brian Kahn. University business schools teach business, from basic market principles and strategic thinking to accounting, finance, and marketing. What they don't normally teach is a self-awareness, a framework for considering your place in the world, and how you can use business principles to make it better. University of Montana professor Justin Engel does just that. Justin, where did you grow up? What did your folks do? I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, Guilford. Uh, my dad was a traveling salesman of paint supplies, and my mom worked for the state government in employment security. Did you, when you were leaving for college, have what I would say key values, political or otherwise, as to who you were? I don't know how well-formed they were. I grew up in a very homogeneous environment. My parents were not particularly politically active, though they were conservative my grandfather was kind of a dominant political force, uh, hmm. very Republican. That had an influence on me at the time. And so when you got into college, did that change over time, that clarity and homogeneity of perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I went to college in West Philadelphia, very diverse on many dimensions, not only the sorts of people I was running into on the street, but also the, the different type of people I was meeting in the classroom. I think just getting open and exposed to more people, more ideas, it definitely broadened my world and backed off of that conservatism quite a bit. Price, how about you? Where'd you grow up? What did your parents do? So I grew up in Grants Pass, Oregon. My dad was a real estate developer. My mom started off as a teacher, went to work at our church, and then ended up as kind of the business manager of a local theater company. Uh, when I was 16, I was in the kind of young Republican, brash, young Republican kind of guy. By 18, I think I'd already kind of softened off of that a little bit. What did you study in school? Uh, so when I was an undergrad, I started off as a history major, and then I added an economics major, and then, you know, kind of shifted more and more into economics as time went on. Why did that interest you? When I taught principles of economics the first time, I quickly learned that there's two types of people, people who think like economists and those who don't. And I took to economics like a fish to water. It was just kind of like, oh, that's just, of course, this is how people think. They weigh costs and benefits, and they try and think through incentives and all that kind of stuff. And so it just was very natural to me. And so that's kind of how I ended up in economics. And you graduated when? Graduated from college in 1999. And then I went to Harvard and graduated 2006 as my PhD. Justin, I didn't ask you about your education. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School. I studied finance. And graduated. Wharton School of Business. That's a pretty famous school, is it not? It's been made a little more famous by our current president, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. Did he go to Wharton? He did. And what would you say you learned in your college years, including postgraduate? Well, it was interesting. Bryce and I were having a conversation about this very thing on the drive up here. Uh, I did major in business, but I also majored in rowing. That was a huge part of my life. Why did it matter to you? I think it mattered because it was a source of identity. I grew up in this tiny little town, and all of a sudden I'm in this big city big institution, and it, it gave me community right away. And it also gave me a way of distinguishing myself within the broader, like a small town within a big city sort of feel. 
rowing is one of those sports where there's pretty solid relationship between the amount of work you put in and what you get out of it. And so yeah. I, I learned the ethic of hard work through that. Tell us about A New Angle. So New Angle is a weekly podcast out of the University of Montana. I started it as a project for my students, mostly uh, with the purpose of illuminating interesting ideas through conversation. Much like your program, I think it's a very uh, effective way of, of sort of interrogating complex ideas and exploring nuance, and it's something that students need. And as I was building a series of interviews in the service of my students, I thought that these interviews could serve a broader audience. And so we launched the podcast about uh, about two years ago. What kind of classes are you teaching first, and then what kind of issues were you interviewing on that you felt were relevant to your students? At the time, I was teaching a Principles of Marketing course, which is the entry-level course that all business students have to take. And I was interviewing people that were working in various areas of business and marketing and trying to explore their approach to those specific areas. What are the principles of marketing, the basic principles that you teach in an elementary class? Sure. Well, we start with objectives. What is the organization trying to do and how can those things be measured? The next step is, in terms of marketing, figuring out who your customers are, which customers are you going to pursue and which customers are you not. And then once you've made that decision, how are you going to pursue them? What is your, what is your argument for why your offer is better or more compelling or the one that customers should choose? And once you've sort of determined those things, you move on to execution. How do you then bring that message to the customer? Okay, now you started the podcast of these interviews in February 2018. That's right. So how do you go from that very interesting idea to having working with Bryce on a project that I understand is a weekly broadcast? When we decided to release a public podcast, Bryce was the first guest. At the time, he was deeply immersed in research on the future of higher education. Obviously, I work in higher education. It's something I think about, our future. And so he was the first guest on the show. And now as we approach episode 100, I wanted to bring Bryce back to interrogate broader conversations that I think are topics that our students and the population in general should be thinking about. You know, I'm an educator. My job is to prepare students for life as an adult. And some of them are already adults and they're, they're looking to change their life in some way, but I'm preparing them for success. And the world they're walking into is a complicated world. It's always been a complicated world, but I think it's particularly complicated right now. And Bryce and I have conversations about this stuff all the time, and we wanted to do it more regularly and capture a bit of our thinking. Bryce, let me ask you, why are you spending the time doing this once a week? And what are the key issues? Well, I just like having conversations with Justin, and we might as well record them so that my kids can hear what I thought about things uh, at some point in the future, maybe. Let me just interrupt you and say with the subtitle of the program, I find quite interesting. A podcast about cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. I like that because it's a much younger perspective than people like me bring to the table. I think it's great. <laughs> I won't call myself a cool person doing awesome things, but we do have interesting conversations. Justin, if people want to hear this series, how do they do it? You can find it on Apple Podcasts under A New Angle. That's A-N-G-L-E. Or wherever you get your podcast, our website is also anewanglepodcast.com. Justin came to me a few months ago and was like, I'm thinking about doing something that's a little bit more regular, mm -hmm. that's more serialized, that allows us to kind of not just talk about what people are doing, but 
yeah, these issues of the day. And so we kind of talked about it for a little bit and we kind of came to this, if you went through the theme of all of our conversations, there's the, this kind of sense that something just isn't quite right. You know, there's lots of things that are going well in the world, right? You know, the economy is pretty good. Life expectancy is good. You know, if you kind of hit these kind of standard metrics, all right. we should be doing really well. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, people seem unhappy. We certainly seemed like there's some problems and we wanted to try and explore what is it that might be the source of some of these, this unease. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of, you know, I think our last conversation was, well, what does that mean for education? You know, how should we be educating students for a world that may be very different than what we see currently? You're listening to Home Ground, and I'm Brian Kahn. We are talking with Justin Angle and Bryce Ward about Justin's podcast, A New Angle, and their collaboration in creating a weekly show on the interesting phenomenon of social unease. Justin, unease is a general term. Happiness is a general term. How did you guys decide to explore it in a way that isn't simply anecdotal? Well, I think Bryce can speak to that specifically in that he is deeply immersed in the data surrounding the economy, happiness, well-being. Um, But what's interesting there is economists typically think of things in terms of economic output. Right. Right. And a lot of the metrics on economic output would indicate that we're doing great right now. Stock market's Stock high, market's doing great. Employment's at all-time right. lows. All this stuff, yet as Bryce mentioned, doesn't really feel like we're doing that well. There's rising incidents of deaths of despair, depression, anxiety, suicide, drug addiction, political polarization and the dialogue associated with that. And there's issues like that that would indicate that we're maybe not as happy a society as we could be. And then do we have a real language for describing happiness and what it means and measuring it? And and so some of these issues, I think we need to bring some of the tools of economics, some of the tools of business, some of the tools of scientific inquiry to understand. Quite interesting that the phrase happiness appears in the Declaration of Independence in the first paragraph as one of the primary purposes of life. So back to you, Bryce, you're studying economy and how do you relate to this ability to quantify and or in some meaningful way get your head around issues like happiness, satisfaction with life? Oddly, in my academic research, even though I am an economist, I ended up in this research institute at the University of Montana where part of what we look at is well-being, but we define it not just as short-term subjective well-being happiness, but also this, you know, I think it's called eudaimonic. Uh, but it's basically this deeper, it's the meaning part of life, okay. right? It's that, you know, we're not, hedon- it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's hedonism, right. which is, hey, we just want to feel good. But then there's, you know, this other tradition, which goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers, is more about, well, look, there's, there's something more to life. And it's about, you know, pursuit of meaning and contribution and all this other stuff. And, okay. and so when, you know, you dig into that and, you know, that's where we kind of feel like that's kind of the thing, the subtext, right? Is because if you look at our material well-being, we, we got good. it. We're very wealthy. Yeah. At least some of us and some yeah. of us live in desperate poverty in the same society. But even those that have wealth, I'm hearing you say varying degrees of wealth are not getting deep meaning from life. How do you measure that? How do you quantify it? How do you articulate it in ways that stimulate discussion? There's a standard set of questions about what we'll call subjective well-being, right? Okay. There's kind of short-term, like, you know, there's 
positive effect, like how happy are you, and negative effect, how much stress and pain, all that kind of stuff. Those are very short term. Then we also use these kind of larger questions that were kind of like global measures of satisfaction. So there's a thing called Cantrell's Ladder, right. which basically says, look, imagine your life as a ladder with 10 rungs, where zero is the worst possible life for you, and 10 is you're living the best possible life for you. And then it says, well, what rung are you on? Is there data that compares the United States with, let's say, Canada, Mexico, Europe? Yeah. So there's we have data which allows us to compare people both you know, you to me, as well as averages across countries. And, you know, look, we're, we're okay. You know, where I think, I'll, I think some of my interest in this from just a purely empirical standpoint comes from is, so it's true. Look, if I give you more money, you're going to tell me that you're better off, at least to some degrees, but it's kind of diminishing. There's diminishing returns to it, it's, right. you know? And then, you know, what we're kind of seeing is if you look over the past, say, 40 years, okay, so basically yes. my life, in spite of all the material progress that we've made, the subjective well-being measures in the United States, if anything, they've gotten worse. I would say that is true. I have no way to back it up. But I can tell you this from that perspective. Certainly the public discourse is much more raw and antagonistic, I will say, since any time since the Vietnam War and maybe even that time. How do you interact, Justin, with, with Bryce on this question of how do we measure and articulate to the students and your listeners to your podcast, again, if you just joined us, a new angle, how do you work together as a team in this? Well, you're just talking about the discourse. And so the media environment that our students are entering or participating in already uh, is very raucous, is very polarized, is very uh, bubble-driven. It's a known psychological effect that we tend to seek information that comports with our existing beliefs. So you mean we're staying in our bubbles. Exactly. And there's business models that increasingly support that. It's an interesting point. I interviewed Tom Brokaw a year and a half ago, and he said that people are in technological tunnels where they can their values are reinforced without any interaction with different points of view, and it's a technology-enabled phenomenon. And he expressed fundamental concern for the democratic structure that we have. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, but he's a pretty experienced guy. How bad is this among your students? I think of students as relaxed, interactive. Are there cliques, et cetera, that are reflected in your experience with students? If you asked the students, they'd probably not sense that there is a problem, right? But that might be exactly the problem, right, that they, they aren't able to pierce their own bubble, and see outside of it and understand the perspectives of other people and get information that doesn't agree with their own view of the world or their parents' view of the world. So I view my responsibility as an educator to open them up to other things, whether it's the, the, the ideology of somebody else in the classroom or somebody, uh, another voice that's not represented on campus or, or in our community. Uh, that's, to me, the job of an, of an educator is to explore that. And that's why I like collaborating with Bryce because through that objective that I have, he can bring his perspective as a student of incentives, right? Economists study incentives and why people make the decisions they do, what's in it for them, what motivates them. So I think we can sort of find some common ground in our conversations that could be illuminating for students. You're listening to Home Ground and I'm Brian Kahn. We are talking about the highly interesting podcast, A New Angle, with its founder, Justin Angle, and economist, Bryce Ward. 
Bryce, the word incentives to me that Justin just referred to means positive encouragements. Normally they're, in my view, uh, financial, tangible. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about something more broad? So I use it more broadly. Uh, so for me, the framework is just benefits and costs. And yes, money is nice and financial incentives are nice, but I'm also motivated by the need for connection and the need for ego. And, you know, so there's all these other needs or whatever we have. Those seem, in comparison, I would call them primal. Sure. In the sense of money is a fairly recent development, but the need for connection and ego. Sure. Those are primal. So how do you factor that into an economic analysis? Or are you, by definition, stepping beyond traditional economics in your assessment? So I've always stepped outside of traditional economics, right? So my dissertation was about social interactions. You know, I was trying to understand social networks and how people make decisions in, within relationships. And it's applying the tools of economics, the framework of economics, which is really just trade-offs. People make decisions weighing benefits and costs. And so when I'm making a decision who to date or who to marry. It's not a dowry. I'm not making decisions based on the money they're bringing. But we're going to engage in some sort of production and exchange within our relationship. And so, you know, that's the, you know, that's where the framework that I think Justin is trying to get at is, you know, I just try and break things down in terms of that, okay, well, let's try and figure out how to label it and let's talk about the benefits and costs of it. Okay, I'm going to ask you both how far you've gotten. But what I'm hearing is this an analogy from my childhood. I was raised to believe that if people had an opportunity for education, their capacity for reason would be fulfilled and they would function and make intelligent choices. I've lived a fair piece of time and interacted with a lot of different kinds of people in different environments, and my sense is that is not true. What is true is if people are in a certain emotional state of mind, then reason can function. But if they're angry or frightened, to pick two examples, their reason does not function. And I'm hearing you say, perhaps, I mean, you talk about the decision of getting married. If there's not some emotion in that and it's just calculation, my guess is it's not going to work out too well. <laughs> so how do you articulate these concepts? You're embarking on this series. How do you bring it home to people? What do you say that, it, that can inform your students and your audience? You're absolutely right that we have these two types of thinking, right? So this is, you know, if you go back to Plato, that's Plato's chariot. Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist at Princeton, calls them type one and type two. And one, type one is your gut emotional thing, and type two is rational. And economists are very good at this rational thinking. We want the whole world to operate like it's in the rational world. But in reality, emotion exists. And so, you know, part of what we have to learn to adapt, and I think part of what this longer conversation is trying to deal with is the intersection between the two. Bryce has talked about trying to make sense of these interactive dynamics. Mm -hmm. I'm going to posit a hypothesis just to put it out there for you to discredit it, support it partially, or whatever. One might make the argument that the highly technological, fast-paced world that we've created through technology, we human beings have created, has negative impacts on the psychological health of people, the feeling of connectedness, the feeling of being part of a, a constructive whole, that it is fundamentally disorienting in terms of the human psyche that goes back to the caves. Freud said that we have an, all human beings have an essential disquiet, which can result in artistic expression, love, hatred, violence. Is that in the ballpark for what you're looking at? Absolutely. I mean, I think if we look at there's a lot of scholars right now who are postulating that 
we're running a tremendously dangerous social experiment on ourselves right now, and that is social media, right? And, and, and that the effects could be so negative in the long run that we should shut the experiment down right now. We don't have the data to support that hypothesis at the moment, but there are beginning to be indications that it's a problem. You know, depression and anxiety is at all-time highs, particularly among teenagers. It's out of control, according to people who run mental institutions for ch young people, for children. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary and unprecedented. And so we can't yet quite say that it's attributable to social media, but it's hard to deny the influence of the media environment. Is there any data that correlates the social media and, I'll call it, mental imbalance? Rice, you're kind of looking skeptical. Uh, well, no, I, I think the point is we just don't know. I think, obviously, the timing is right, right? So if you go back a decade, maybe it's a little more than a decade, teenage suicide, ideation, mental health, were actually as good as they've ever been. I'll be darned. And, you know, what we've seen is a complete reversion of whatever gains we gained from the late 90s through the early 2000s have completely been lost, and now we're kind of reaching kind of the worst we've seen, at least within the data. So that's a serious implication can be drawn without having exactly the data. Something's going on. Something changed within a decade. And you made the comment earlier, Brian, that, that when people are in the right emotional state or the wrong emotional state, different things are possible. I, I sort of look at students, and I see them either in one of two emotional states. They're either checked out, like they're not paying attention, they're not interested, or they're hyper-engaged. And the media environment we're in right now, when you're hyper-engaged, you tend to seek information that confirms your worldview, you t and the media environment also continues to serve you information that takes you down that bubble further. And so our goal in these conversations is to try to pull people out of that to try to get back to a place where we can discuss nuance and complexity and get people to question their own assumptions and their own view of the world. Not a simple matter in my experience dealing with adults, not students. Absolutely. Have you seen glimmers of success in your ability to accomplish that goal of pulling people out of their existing state? I think college is the right time to do that. I mean, I think it's, it's the right time for all of us. We all need to do it. But at, at a younger age, traditionally, like you're going to college to open yourself to the world, right? And so I sort of view it as fundamental to my job to at least be trying to push that. Most of our podcasts are, they're still in the can. They'll be coming out in the future. But to the extent the ones that we have done, we've been successful at getting people to see things that they haven't seen before. For example... Yeah, a great example is a conversation we, we've had on the podcast and in class about the future of work, right? What does work look like? What are the jobs that hmm. we're preparing students to do? And there's a lot of speculation. I mean, nobody knows for sure what the future will bring. Does it cause anxiety or does it cause curious inquiry and positive inquisitiveness or both? I think it should cause both. I think that students need to be motivated to sort of feel both of those and mm -hmm. be thinking about it actively. Like they're not just going to walk out of college into a job that they're going to have the rest of their lives and it will never change. They need to know sort of what forces are at play that will shape the world they were going to live in. And that applies to all of us, whether we're college students or not. Work is changing and it's changing in unpredictable ways. A lot of the research shows that jobs like mine are secure in one sense, in that the core value that I create as a college professor is there's going to be continued demand for that. Yes. But it can be disrupted in the sense that the way in which I deliver it is under pressure. 
the four-year degree, the traditional sort of sage on the stage in front of the classroom. A lot of these things can be replicated in other ways with technology. Yet, like I said, the core value of what I deliver is imminently important. Okay, do you have examples of the student reaction? We do have examples. You know, we talked about the accounting profession in class. So a lot of students want to study accounting. And accounting is an important part of business. It's the language of business. And having deep understanding of accounting will serve you well in almost any pursuit. Now, accounting is under pressure. It's a highly skilled task, but it's repetitive. Yep. And these sorts of skills can be disrupted by artificial intelligence and are likely to be disrupted. So people that are interested in accounting and want to study and make it a career need to be thinking about what aspects of the job will be replaced by technology and then what other things can they apply their intellect and interest to to propel their careers. We have people that drive trucks. They're professional. It's hard work. They get reasonably good pay. Clearly, the makers of trucks or electronic self-driven trucks can make more money without a driver. That seems to me to be an example of putting technology above social welfare, technologically generated profits at the expense of healthy human labor. Is that an issue you guys talk about in any respect, Bryce? Yeah, so dealing with transition is obviously hard. Right? So as an economist, generally economists are pro-creative destruction. You know, we think, look, yes. the economy changes. The challenge, and I think the thing that we've been somewhat muted on. We know that it's all economics that I'm going to tell you now, but it hasn't reached the level that we kind of put out into the discourse, which is like, look, when people go through these transitions, when you're the person who's actually caught in the transition, yes, it's very big in terms of your lost wages, your health effects, you know, your life expectancy. And your life definition of being, being a purposeful, meaningful who you are. person of society and your, your past is thrown out the window. And when you don't have something that's very close to what you were doing to transition into, and that's part of what we've seen with the combination of, it's not just technology, it's also technology and trade, where we basically have put more, you, the individual worker, face more competition than probably you did 50, 60 years ago. We live in what we call a free market economy. One of the pillars of it is if technology is profitable for the investors, it will be implemented. I'm hearing perhaps that you're saying ain't so simple as that because the human consequences of that paradigm affect more and more people over time with more rapidity. What is your sense for the potential of bringing in an evaluation of social consequences before a technology is applied? Justed your comments about the impacts of social media come to mind. People are thinking maybe we've got to shut this down if it's going to profoundly wreak havoc on elements of our society. What do you say to that looking forward? Yeah, two things there. I mean, the premise that we live in a free market economy, I, I question that a little bit, but that might be a whole other episode, Brian. I do think we have a responsibility as a society to sort of help figure out whether ideas are good or not. And the judgment for whether an idea is good should not be isolated to how much money or shareholder value it should create. You know, a lot of the problems associated with technological disruption, uh, we need to give students and citizens, agencies or whoever it is, the sort of tools to look into the future and foresee negative consequences associated with technology. So I'm going to agree with most of that. I think a lot of this is really about power. And part of this is really just getting into saying we need to withhold some of the power in the collective to decide what consequences we're really willing to bear to allow a new technology, which may be great or maybe not, 
right now what we've done with the most recent iteration of technology is what we frequently do, which is just unleashed it into the world. And a lot of people have made a lot of money off of it. Only now we're kind of sitting there going, I don't know, was this a good idea or not? And I think we need to kind of maybe do it so that we do that at least some point earlier on, we have those conversations. Justin Angle, Bryce Ward. I very much regret to say we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us on Home Ground. And to our listeners, many thanks for being with us. We hope you'll join us next week. Home Ground is an independent production of Artemis Common Ground. The views expressed may not reflect those of this radio station. Post-production by Valtron Recording Studios. Archived Home Ground programs dating from 1996 can be heard on the Montana Historical Society's website, mtmemory.org. We welcome your ideas for new programs at www.homegroundradio.net. Home Ground is made possible by grants from the Liz Claiborne Art Ortenberg Foundation, Montana Committee for the Humanities, Cinnabar Foundation, the Lee and Donna Metcalf Charitable Trust, and the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging discussion of ideas, trends, and values of importance to Montanans.